Kevin Moore. My name is Tom McNown. I'm leading on the oral history of British coaching. We tend to forget who has done what over the period. And if I mentioned people like Jeff Dyson to most people, they wouldn't know who you were talking about. Yeah, he was the first director of coaching back in 1947. The aim is through a patchwork quilt of interviews to give an understanding of where we are and how we came to be here. Now, I'd like now to introduce Lorna Booth, who was Commonwealth 100 meter hurdles champion in 1978. She went on beyond her athletics competitive career into coaching and administration. She's still serving the sport as well now. There's only really one place that everybody gets an experience of athletics, and that's school, Lorna. So what was your initial experience of athletics within the curricular experience in school and maybe an after-school sport? I was really lucky. I think I had school sports on the curriculum. I had athletics all the time, right through from my primary school. I was doing borough sports at seven, eight years old. But I was lucky I had Jackie Fidgin, who was a, an England netball player, and um, Dorothy Tyler, those two were my PE teachers. So Dorothy took me for long jump and other bits and pieces. And I had Jackie on the other side, who took me to all the meetings, entered me in everything, and introduced me to athletics at the club. That was a very rich environment you found yourself in. I knew Dorothy later, much later because of course she won medals in both the 1936 Olympics, silver, and the 48 Olympics, again a silver. When did you move into club athletics, Lorna? And what did you find when you got there? So I went into club athletics, I was 11 years old. So the moment I joined my um, secondary school, um, I was taken down to Michimacy, up at, in Carshorton. I started, I think, about November of that year, just before my 12th birthday. I was the only child of colour, I was the only black child in the club. It was a very sort of a community inclusive club. They looked after everybody. Loads of internationals when I joined. I had Jenny Palsy, Barbara Ann Barrett, numerous amount of um, top athletes. So it was definitely the place to be. It was heaven. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds <laughs> pretty good. And what was the opportunity to get an all-round experience when you arrived before you get into really serious competitive athletics, Lana. We had loads of open meetings, loads of little leagues, county champs, and I just, I did everything. Loads of young people and everybody just did their favourite events. I did long jump, I did high jump, I did javelin, 800 metres, which I hated. I was a cross-country runner and in the summer I did the track. So I did almost every event you could think of apart from... Um, steeplechase and uh, discus. <laughs> well, I just wanted to check if you got, uh, in your 800 metres, Lorna, you got feeding stations. Do you know what? <laughs> they gave me a couple because all I did was jogged at the back and I sprinted the last 150. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about that. So you, you, you were very fortunate. How would you compare what you experienced at Mitchum in those early days with what you see around you now in, in most of the clubs? What inspired me was I had lots of older athletes around me. They trained with the club. They inspired the young people and we trained with them. So I think nowadays, a lot of the older athletes or the elite athletes, as we call them now, don't actually train with the clubs. They're not around with the clubs. So those kids don't get that 
inspiration, that motivation anymore. I think there's very few of the elite athletes train or even go and compete for their clubs. That's a very interesting observation, Lana. You got into a very rich environment, probably as good as any in the country at the time, I would have thought. Yeah, one of the best, I think. When did you start moving into national level athletics? I think it was about 17. I was ranked in the top four or five in the long jump. 72 Olympics, I think, was my turning point because Mary Peters, she just won the, the pentathlon and I was watching on TV and I had this thrill come down my spine. I thought, that's what I want. And that was the moment then I started looking for a coach to take me to the next level. So that's when I decided I needed to leave my club environment and then try and find a coach that was going to take me to where I wanted to be. Mary Peters was very much where we overlapped because I, I went in a Winston Churchill Fellowship um, that year, in 1971, and uh, Major General Lassels, who ran the, the, the Winston Churchill Fellowship, said, look, I've got this request from a, a lady called Mary Peters. You know who she is? Because Lassels knew nothing at all about athletics. He said he wants to go with her, her coach, Buster, Colin Buster, very posh fella. He said, uh, to America, could you give any support for that, Tom? And I said, yes, I would completely support it. So I had a small part, of the, I know I saw a lot of Mary later, I had a very small part in that as well with Mary Peters by sheer chance. So what was the next step you took? How did you take it? I made some um, inquiries and I was told that the best coaches were at Crystal Palace. That was the place to be at the time. So I went to uh, Crystal Palace and uh, on a Saturday morning, there was this gentleman there who coached David Henry. And they said he was one of the best coaches. So I, I went up and I saw Fred Housden and I said to him, um, I want to be a top class hurdler. And he looked at me and he said to me, I only coach good hurdlers. And uh, good athletes. And I was like, oh, and he basically shooed me away. So I was so angry, so upset. And I went back to Crystal Palace again and I met George Stratford. So I started with George. And funnily enough, George said to me, my best athletes train on a Tuesday. You can come on a Thursday. And I was like, huh? <laughs> so I started going with George. Then I started going on a Sunday and he said to me, you need to come on a Tuesday. And so although I'd hurdled with the club, you know, sort of as a youngster, real hurdling training started with George. But at the time I was, I was in line to see a coach called Tom McNabb. And um, I'd spoken to my teammate, Judy Vernon, but at the time he couldn't fit me in. I was, I was too young and, and he had too many athletes. So I had to wait until Judy Vernon retired. And then I took her spot. And I was lucky enough to be coached by somebody called Tom McNabb. <laughs> yeah. It's all news. It's all news to me. <laughs> it's all news to me because uh, Judy had uh, won the 1974 Commonwealth. Yeah. And I changed her from a pentathlete into a hurdler because she couldn't go off the deck in a high jump. As I mentioned before, she needed feeding stations. And she was one of these real workers. She really, really knew how to put herself to the task. And who are the other people in the group? So there was Lynn Eilert, Roy Mitchell, yeah. Sue Mapstone, Alison Manley, Helen Peter Barnett, G Wendy Hoyt, or Wendy Clark, Steve Green. So those are the people that I remember. When I came into the group, these are the people that were around me. We always talk about the technical aspects of athletics, but how important do you feel 
that this environment was, people like that, who were really very much a community. It was almost like a family. We looked after each other, we supported each other, fed off of each other. Even outside of training, we, we would every now and then get together. We even played tricks on you, Tom, that you didn't even know of when we went away on warm weather training. I'd be too dumb to know what was happening right. to me. I have to share one. We had all gone to Paris on the, was it Vincennes? It was the yeah. indoor centre. Massive, 300 metre track. That's right. You trained us really, really hard. You'd worked us really hard and we were tired. We got some shaving foam and um, shaving foamed your bed. <laughs> and I don't know if you, <laughs> and you got into your bed and it was full of shaving foam. But um, that's how we got back at you. <laughs> well, well, is that what soft soaping means? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't remember all this. It shows you when you get to a certain age, you don't have a memory. You've got a forgettery. But no, I remember Van Sen, and I remember it was a massive indoor track. There was 300 meters indoors, a, a wonderful facility, and hardly anybody ever in it except us. Yeah, it was beautiful. So on you went to eventually in in 78. You took over from duty, didn't you, as Commonwealth champion? Yeah. And what do you think the major things that you learned? I don't just mean technical, but in the way you saw the sport in that period. Once I moved over from George to yourself, the whole of my attitude and my lifestyle changed. A lot of people said, oh, you know, how did you, you know, how did you transfer yourself? I was still working, but I, I managed to get two days off of work each week. I changed my sleeping habits. I got up at six o'clock in the morning, did a session in the morning came back to the session in the evening, was in bed by a certain time. I changed my diet. My whole outlook changed. I stopped partying. Everything changed because my focus was to go out there and be the best. But running all through it, Alana, comes over. But you enjoyed it. That's yeah. why we're in it, isn't it? Loved it. Loved it on and off the track. And, and just the, the people that I was surrounded by. Even the coaches were not too bad either. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I think we can refrain from any further comment on that, on that particular person, that Scott. I remember him well. Now, when did you retire and move into coaching and even administration? First of all, moved into administration and I did a little bit of coaching. So when I had my son in 1990, I, I lived in the US for a while and came back. Somebody contacted me from south of England and I started doing workshops with the youngsters um, for South of England. So I was an assistant coach. I was actually fast-tracked, but what I did is I, I had to do some workshops. I had to take some sessions. They looked at what I did, how I did it, and they assessed me. And that's how I got my coaching awards. I did a little bit for my club. I was a training partner for like Gary Retikan, 400 Hurdles, in between doing that and doing administration. So I did a little bit of coaching, but then the good thing happened was that Frank Dick was the coaching director at the time. They were looking to take athletes or ex-athletes from the sport to bring them back into administration or coaching side. So they had a setup where we went on, a, I think it was a six weekends where they trained us to be administrators, to be team managers, to be team coaches. They then took us on, sent us to junior championships, so home internationals, junior championships, and assessed us as we went along. And so we moved up, helped with the seniors, we were assistants for seniors. So that's how my administrative side came through. They interviewed for 
team leaders or team managers at the time. And I think um, Eddie Kulakundas was one of the interviewers, along with Malcolm Arnold. And I got the role of team manager. So that's how I stepped into the team manager role. I did team management for about nine years. Then I left the sport for a little while, but then my son suddenly wanted to do athletics. So I came back into athletics as an assistant coach to Matt Favia. I just came in and sat down as a parent to begin with. And then more and more and more, I could see things that I could do, more that I could help. And I think that's how I was drawn into coaching. I was given the chance to learn. I was mentored by various people within the sport. So I was guided all along the way. So there was a pathway for me to come through. I also had the opportunity to be mentored by international coaches, people like Leo Davis, John Smith, Bobby Kersey. What do you feel was the relationship between uh, the national coaches whom you originally met, between the professional staff and the sport as a whole? Was it a, a good one? The national coaches of when, when I was competing or even when I was team administration, the athletes, I think we knew the, who they were. Yeah. So we knew exactly who they were, what they did, and they, they moved around the country and made themselves known to people. I think that has changed. The, the whole role has changed. I mean, there was no golden age, but certainly looking back, there was a very strong bond between them. One of the things that's missing now, and I think people have, have moved on or maybe thought they should move on because it's better for the sport, was having national squads. You know, I found national squads, you were able to, to meet the rest of the team. You actually met the coaches. Coaches knew what your plans were, but also they knew your coaches. Some of that, I think, is in place. I think it depends really on the person that's in the position or in the role. Yeah. What you're really describing is a commoner approach, isn't it? Yeah. And I remember part of the period you're talking about, we had two-day courses at Crystal Palace, didn't we? all the way through the winter yeah. for the very best athletes. And it was a whole bunch of us. So you had Jeff Capes and Steve Bedford and Alan Pascoe and all these guys all battling out in the volleyball court and so on. I've done a few um, squad weekends or hurdle weekends, you know, up at Sutton. Kids love it. Coaches love it. And they say, this is what we need because they're able to, to mix with other athletes within the same events. Yes. They're able to talk to coaches. Right. And it's, it's different than just being at your own club or being with your own group. And it just opens up a world for you, I think. Also, too, by being part of a multi-event group, the athletes got a good idea of the overall diversity of the sport. And if they want to stay in it as an administrator or as a coach, they've got a pretty good idea of what they're staying in. They're not just in a harrier sport, which is the one I started in. People who knew nothing at all about field events. But that changed radically, didn't it? That's just so important that you learn, learn your sport. And this is one of the things I think I try to get my athletes to do is to learn their sport rather than just going to an event and training and, and, and competing. But you know nothing really much about it or the history of it. Yes. What you're really talking about is an early, pre-competitive, if you like, and competitive athletic education. And it's not just a matter of, been able to perform in your own event, but you know the culture you're in. You've got a good idea what it's all about. Right now, um, looking at the present composition of clubs, how do you think clubs have changed in their composition? Particularly, I think the age composition and say the volume and quality of coaches we have and the quality of competition we have. 
since COVID, there's been a lot of, in our club in particular, there's been quite a few kids have come in, a lot of youngsters, but we're struggling with, with anybody over 17. One of the things is that everybody's now going abroad to compete. On the upper level, there's not enough good class competition for them. We're not finding a way to keep them at home, to compete at home so that, so that we can promote the sport at home. The younger age groups, some of the leagues, I think the, the little leagues like the Lily Bees, I suppose, and the Ebisham Leagues are good because it encourages all the youngsters to come in and you don't have to run for the, for the points. Um, you can go in and, and enjoy it. And I think that we just need to relook at how leagues and, and how we can encourage more people to come in. And the travelling also is just, I think it deters a lot of people. We do need to look at how we structure the leagues, you know, how far they're travelling how long our athletics events are, because some of them are just far too long. Yeah, I mean, I was responsible for bringing, with Tony Ward, I went to Poland in 66. One thing we brought back with us was the league. The governing body didn't want to have them. And yeah. it was only when about half a dozen of the top clubs came to the three A's and said, look, if you don't form one, we'll do it ourselves. Tony Ward was asked to put it together. Leagues do operate well when you've got enough to field teams. Once you move downwards, you find that you've got some guy doing three metres in a long jump, and it becomes farcical. But surely we've got sports or athletics, which is probably the best expression of winter athletics for children in the world. Kids love it, and I think that's a way of bringing the kids into the sport. It's an enjoyment, and I think at the young age, it's, it's got to be enjoy, enjoyment as well as teaching them about competition and getting them to realise what they can do later on. Another factor, of course, it brings in parents. You know, it brings into a club parents who hold the tape for you, hold the watch for you, even though they're not going to become coaches necessarily. Yeah, it's, it's like family time as well, isn't it? You're going to enjoy something your child enjoys and you're going along to support. That also gives a bond, doesn't it? It makes a bond with the child and its parents. We still do have it sporadically in the country, what I call five-star meetings, where you only spend about two hours there, but you do about three or four events. And you get a certificate at the end of the day. And so if you have these on a county level, almost the equivalent of your um, sports hall, then you, you've really got a framework for this pre-competitive period, haven't you? Yeah, you need something for, for winter, don't you, for the, for the youngsters? You, you need something oh, winter, yeah. yeah winter yeah. and summer. You know, one of the things that I think is really important to youngsters, and I don't think children or kids have changed from when I was young to now. No, they, they still like to have a certificate or a medal or something to show that they've done well or to say they participated, you know, and I still think that's important to give them something to go away with to show that they've taken part or right. they've done well. Well, in that period uh, from 66 to about 2002, 80 million certificates, five-star certificates were given out. 80 million. Wow. And we reached 27 nations. I got one of those. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I've, I mean, got, yeah, I've got one of those as well, yeah. But I remember when I it very much started at Dr. Challoner's with a man called Alan Launder, an outstanding teacher and coach, uh, Dr. Challoner's Namership. And I went to lecture there a few years ago. And a boy, an old man, a man of 60-odds, brought his certificates that I'd signed from all those years before. Wow. And he still remembered those moments. That's what you weave into people's lives, isn't it? Yeah. And, and he said to me, look, everything Mr. Launder told me when I was at school, that you valued effort. If you made the effort and you tried hard, you'd be rewarded. I tell my kids that. 
So you're doing more than just athletics, aren't you? Yeah, it's more, and, and it's helping that person's self-confidence. Yeah, it helps people just in life to understand themselves as well, isn't it? You know, we're looking now at, I think I'm looking at one of my last questions, actually, but what do you think the central issues which the sport now faces? Our issues really is how are we going to keep the athletes, coaches and officials in the sport? A lot of people are coming into our sport, learning how to sprint. We've got footballers, we've got rugby players, we've got all these different sports coming in, learning our sport and then leaving to go to another sport where they earn more money. Coaches and the officials, they're getting older. We're not recruiting enough younger people coming in. Those, I think, are the issues is keeping people in our sport at the moment and keeping the spectators interested in our sport. I think we've got to find a way of making our sport interesting to spectators so that we get the stands filled again. Well, of course, we've got one example that uh, was came up with Parliament Hill, the 10K one at Parliament Hill. But again, uh, you know, 5,000 people arrived. But it's interesting if you look at the Highland Games in Scotland, it draws 250,000 people a year, for God's sake. Still? Yeah. Wow. And in fact, if you look at at world level, Switzerland has its own Highland Games Association. <laughs> I, I can't even believe that, I say. Now, if you get any other issues you want to bring up, any things that you would like to add to it from the long body of experience in the sport that you've had, I know a lot of people are using sports science to um, lead our sport at the moment. And it was just really that it's really relevant. However, not everybody has access to all these different apparatus, scientific equipment, and it's mainly governing bodies and, you know, that will have them. And, and it's important to know that coaching needs to be an experience. People need to learn the people that they're coaching, their environments need to learn their events learn how to coach people rather than just using scientific and books and and just you know being online i just think it's important to have face-to-face experience in coaching so um, sports science has its place it does help our sport but i think that we shouldn't rely too heavily on it Uh, it's very interesting that jeff dyson who was the first director of coaching just after the war he said he used to travel all over the world and he would find people who knew much more than he did about the biomechanics of shop would say. And then when he said, oh, well, who do you coach? The guy would say, I don't coach anybody. So that knowledge is a waste of time, really, unless it's applied somewhere mm. and applied in a practical way. And you're quite right. That's one of the issues we've got to face. We've got to really enrich the sport by drawing upon the experience of the past. And that's what we're doing in these interviews. We need to look to see what's out there. We need to find a system where we can pull in all the expertise we have and use that and make it a better structured sport, trying to encourage more high-level athletes.